G'day, g'day, this is Rita Join, and welcome to the Unbox Your Give podcast. How to turn a passion into a profession. You're in for a treat. Welcome to the first podcast or Unbox Your Give podcast for 2020. So this is going to blow your mind. My guest today has a PhD in history, but apart from his love for history, he had a real passion for gardening. This is a story of how you take something so basic and so everyday and turn it into a profession. Not only a profession, turn it into an empire. The story is, uh, if you're in Australia, you would be familiar with this. It's Jim Penman and his company is called Jim's Mowing. And Jim's mowing started really from Jim going and mowing backyards. He just loved gardening and he was starting to mow back backyards. So one job turned to another job, turned into a referrals. And before he knew it, he had a little business going. That little business now has 35,000 clients a day. It makes 500 million a year, all from a history lecturer whose passion for gardening turned into a profession. So if you have ever had any idea that you thought maybe was silly, was too small, was where could it possibly get me? I mean, it's so whimsical or it's so, you know, just insignificant. This is really going to just really drive home for you. It's going to show you the road that Jim took, a history lecturer, and how he took his passion for mowing a lawn and turned that into an empire. And he's known in Australia as Australia's backyard millionaire from mowing lawns. This is his incredible story. Have a listen, let me know your thoughts. And it's just like the pinnacle of how to take your passion and unbox it. Enjoy. G'day, g'day, this is Rita Join, and welcome to the Unbox Your Give podcast, all about how to turn a passion into a profession. And I want to introduce to you today, Jim. Now, Jim, I want you to go straight into telling me what is your biggest failure that you have experienced that you can remember right now? The trouble is, Rita, there's so many, but, but one that strikes out is, is in my student days through mowing lawns and with a bit of an inheritance, I managed to actually buy a house. And then I, I stuffed things up so badly with the business I was running that I not only lost the house, I actually ended up like $30,000 in debt um, with, with absolutely nothing, everything gone. So I had a great start in my 20s and I completely destroyed it just from being lazy, from being, I don't know, just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that strikes it. I've lost a lot more money since then, but, but at that time, that was huge. Huge, yeah. No, absolutely. Now, I, what is really incredible to me, and I'm sure it is to everyone, is that you are a PhD historian. Like, you've got your, your, your doctorates in history. Mm. You've yes. written books on history. So you're actually Dr. Jim Penman. <laughs> Let's just be really honest. Not, not to most people, but that's technically correct, yes. Okay. Your, your, your work and your business has now travelled to places like England, Canada, New Zealand, obviously in Australia. And so this podcast, Jim, is all about turning a passion into a profession. You took $24, you were $30,000 plus in debt. After your first marriage, you decided to start mowing lawns. Yes. And you're a PhD student. Well, why did you do that? Well, I was, I was doing it as a student. In fact, I had my business continuously since before I started university in 1970. I took a gap year and did a bit of gardening then. And then when I was a student, I used to do it part-time because it was kind of like a, a, a pretty good income. 
it was exercise, it was being outside, which I like, and I like gardening, I like lawn mowing, so it was pretty natural. See, I mean, back in, this is like mid-1970s, I could charge five bucks for mowing somebody's lawn, which took me half an hour. Now, 10 bucks an hour in the mid-70s, bear in mind, I bought my first house, cost me like $33,000. So that was good money. Yeah. And, yeah. And, I, and you couldn't earn that much money anywhere else. So, you know, $10 an hour was great. My first job, actually, when I left school was, was working for $18 a week on a farm, yeah. plus keep. So $10 a day sounds quite a lot by comparison, doesn't it? You were doing well for yourself. So how did you go from not pursuing the world of academia and going into just mowing lawns on a consistent basis? Well, I, I, I made a big mistake in, in, a, in a career sense in, the, in that um, when you want to be a historian, you've got to actually become a specialist in one field of history. You've got to become the absolute expert in the in the, in the latter phases of the wars of the road or something like that. And you've got to be the world expert. That's how you become a historian. I wasn't interested in that. What I want to know is why everything happens. Why civilizations rise and fall? And the, the, the huge questions. And, uh, I, and I found to, to find that answer, I started off in history. I tried sociology, thought that was a lot of garbage. Went into history and then I thought, okay, then I started looking at cross-cultural anthropology and and zoology and psychology. And so I had this enormous topic, which was way beyond. And, and one of the comments on my PhD thesis, which I almost didn't get, I got knocked back the first time, was that if this was a, a magnum opus at the end of a distinguished career, then maybe we consider it. But who is this guy? He's upsetting, <laughs> overturning every idea about the way society works, completely revolutionary. So I had no chance of a job. Wow. Nobody was going to employ me with wild ideas. That, that was that very entrepreneurial of you. Well, entrepreneurial sort of makes money. This was actually yeah, a money losing proposition. Idea, like to just question something. That's very... Yes. Yeah. Well, ever since I was in my, in my teens, I, I was wondering about things like, why did the Roman Empire collapse? Why did wealthy civilizations, the population drop when in biological terms they should increase? I was, I was always curious about such things and I wanted to find out. See, but what happened then is I found myself after 10 years at university, and was, I mean 10 years studying this subject, um, I found myself with a situation where I had a theory that could, you could actually test in the laboratory. You can test biohistory in the laboratory. You can go in and you can do things with mice and rats, and you expect, we've had some very interesting findings since then, which have actually confirmed many of my findings, like the use of pheromones to change behavior, for example. Um, but you need money for that. So what do you do? You're an impoverished, expelled PhD <laughs> student with no prospects of a job, with no money, deeply in debt. Well, what do you do to try and make enough money to be able to fund your passion? Well, you mow lawns for a living. That's what I did. Oh, I love that. And so you're, you're mowing lawns. At any point in time when you're mowing lawns, did you ever feel sorry for yourself? In, and um, let me preface that by thinking, well, this is not what I imagined. I imagined I'd be doing something because when you're graduating, you go to university because to get to something of a, what the society would call something of status, something of prestigious mark, did you ever feel like, well, you know, sorry for yourself? Rita, never in my life have I ever felt sorry for myself. I have been blessed unfairly in so many ways. So many, I've had God pour down blessings upon me. And I often think, what... What on earth did I do to deserve this? Wow. I've led a really blessed, exciting, wonderful life, and it keeps on getting better. So, wow. no. 
That's be- that's a beautiful, and that's just a testament to your perspective in life. Like that's really the way you're seeing life. Because I know reading mm-hmm. the story, you and I'm going to go through it, the things that have happened to you. So the audience who's listening right now, like trust me, Jim's been through a lot. <laughs> like you have been through a lot in your life. I mean, you've been through three three marriages. You've had to fire your own sister, and that caused caused a lot of heartache in your own family. Like that. Those and she stood on and speak to me. Yes. It still doesn't. Like how do you do? Like okay, so, just let me paint the picture here. You run a business. Your sister was uh, hired by you. How did you find the guts to fire her? Well, for a start, what the problem was that Jew was in England and couldn't get back to Australia, had no money. My mother was dying, all right? And my mother loves Jill, okay? Jill's a, she's a good daughter, all right? And I thought, how can I get my sister back? And to be pretty blunt, I wanted to make it tax effective. So what I said was, okay, I'll hire to do a job in Australia. In the contract, I'll pay all your moving expenses. If it doesn't work out, then I'll, I'll wipe the debt, which was like 20 grand or so, getting her and all her possessions back. So I thought that's a pretty reasonable deal. Now, I, Jill's a pretty intelligent girl. I know that. But, and so I thought she, she'd obviously do a good job. There's got to be something she can do here. And she came here and she was awful. I tried her in job after job after job and the co-workers just said she's no good. She just doesn't, she just doesn't work. She just can't do it. No matter what we give her, she just can't do it. I, mean, I don't want to denigrate my sister. Maybe there's a, a perfect job for her out there. But the fact of the matter is I, I have a responsibility to my staff. And if I, if I employ somebody because they're my sister who doesn't deserve a job, what does it say to the people who, who work decently? And what about my franchisees who pay me to give them service if I actually employ somebody who doesn't deserve it. Mm. To, to me, my obligation to my staff and to my, you know, I wasn't kicking her out to starve. I mean, if she, if she ever wanted money, I'd always help her out. I always had mm. kind of given her a card and helped her out because she's never been very financial. And, mm. and you know, I, I love my sister. I mean, it, it was sad, but you have responsibilities. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, Jean, because I, I know you're from a very devout Christian background and I'm from a Muslim background. And I, and I always would think to myself, did you ever have a conflict of just spiritual conflict when you made that decision at all? No, not for a second. I, I do not believe. Look, you have obligations to your family. Providing somebody with a job they don't deserve is not one of them. Not, and, I, and my children all know the same thing. They've all worked for me at various stages and they all know every one of them. They have to justify what they do. I said, being my, your father um, gets you the job, but it doesn't keep you the job. You keep the job by what you do. Every single one of them has told, been told exactly the same thing at nauseam. They, they have to justify it. And my kids, you know, give them credit. They've got a great work ethic. They, they really do. Not one of my children have ever disappointed me in work terms. Wonderful. Well, they've got a great example in front of them. So if someone was in your position and who had a passion like mowing lawns, like painting, like craft, like whatever it might be, I mean, no one would exist. I mean, did you expect to build the empire that you have? No, no. I, I expected to be able to be successful because I believe that God gave me a mission to pursue my research. That was, that's something that's central. What I didn't expect is that lawn mowing would be the way through. So I, to me, lawn mowing was just the thing I knew. The only thing I knew that was a way of just keeping going until my real opportunity came along. I didn't know what it was going to be. Yeah, I, yeah. I had to go at Amway in the early days, which wasn't, I wasn't very good at. <laughs> I, I opened a computer shop. I tried a mower shop. I, I, I did all kinds of things. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm still trying things. I tried to get a holiday resort going, which was a huge disaster and lost a lot of money. And 
I keep on throwing money at things. My wife says I, I'm just terrible that way, but I'm always looking for them. It's only just very gradually it, it, it occurred to me, hey, this, this, this little mowing thing's not too bad. And because you've actually said in the previous, in one of your interviews, that you're not a good salesperson, that you don't sell very well. No. Then how do you build a business when you're not good at sales? Well, the, the, the story that I give, and it's in my, in my book and everywhere else that I talk about, was when I was, tr in the early days, pre-lawn mowing, I was trying, pre-franchise, I was trying to sell lawn mowing rounds. That's like, you build up a group of customers and you sell them. And I was actually, I could find customers okay. I could get them looked after okay. I mean, I had the subbies and stuff and they weren't that good, but still we managed to look after them and I did some work myself. So I was okay at that and I couldn't sell. I was totally, totally bad at selling. I just had no idea how to do it. I just felt so uncomfortable with the process. And I, I did all kinds of weird things. I even employed a professional salesman to sell for me in a little shed in the backyard, which was just you know the size of hardly anything, bedroom. And he'd be there selling my business where I was sitting there pretending to work on the computer. That's how lacking in confidence. And, and I actually learned how to sell in a single day. I can actually remember the, the minute that, that, that the whole trigger occurred to me. And I've always felt that this particular lesson was the core of my whole business success since in my career, I went to see somebody in my church who was in the advertising business. And I was thinking I might need an advertising agent. And I went to see this guy and he was very successful, millionaire, this kind of stuff, really knowledgeable, very plush carpets, you know, glass top, tabletops. And I was this, this shabby sort of lawn mine contractor, okay, without a clue. So this guy was pretty overwhelming for me in a way. And he took me into his office and for, half an hour, he just sat me down and talked to me about the mowing business, how to, sorry, about the advertising business, how to find work, what media to use, what messages to use, just everything he knew from all experience. And the end of that, end of that half hour session, he said to me, Jim, you don't really need an advertising agent at this stage, just go out and do what I said. Now, I walked out of the office and the first thing I knew, I realized is that if I ever needed an advertising agency, I would go straight back to this guy, Peter. I wouldn't consider anybody else. I was absolutely, completely sold on him. And as I was walking away, my car was parked quite a few streets away. I was thinking about this. I was thinking, what on earth has happened here? This guy has told me nothing about his business. He's told me nothing about his clients, nothing about his successes. I don't even know what he charges. But I know that if I ever need an advertising agent, I'll go straight back to him. And as I was walking, I was thinking about this and I thought the only thing he's done in that entire interview, the only concern he's had is my welfare and the welfare of my business. And by doing that, he's completely sold me on his business. And I can just remember reaching out. I had my car was parked and it was the worst car you could imagine. It was the battered Kingswood. The back seat was ripped out for rubbish and you have no idea how. You've never seen such a decrepit car in your life. And I never used to lock it because nobody would steal it. And I reached out and just to get the handle of the car and this thought occurred to me. I said, I wonder if this approach could possibly work for selling lawn mowing rounds. So the next time somebody rang me from the paper about lawn mowing round advertising, instead of talking about my business, I asked him a question. I said, tell me, do you know what the cut of a lawn mowing round means? Now, a cut is each job done once. If you've got 
60 customers worth $40 each, that's $2,400. Anybody in the industry would know what that means and how you value a business and it's so much per cut and gives you an idea how much income. So that was obvious to anybody in the industry, but I knew that people didn't know that when, when they were inquiring. So I started to explain and I just started to talk about the business, about how to be successful and how to buy the best business and how to value it and what to look for and what you can get for a price and just everything, what sort of equipment, everything I knew about. And then when he came to see me, I said the same thing. I just talked about the business and how to be successful in the business. And the end of it, all I did is I got some customers in your area. This is the list. This is what they are. That's it. A little bit later, somebody rang me and, and, and he showed me this effect was working because this guy asked me a really interesting question. He said, tell me, I want you some advice from you. And I said, yeah, sure. He said, I've been offered a business in my area which is the better business, that one or yours? That's a really interesting question because obviously I'd shown him that I was concerned. Now, my thought was, well, okay, I'm doing this to sell lawn mowing grounds, but if I tell them to buy the other business, I've stuffed my whole point. But I thought, I can't do this. There's, there's, no, there's no integrity in that. I've got, to give him, I've got to give him an honest answer, even if I lose out. And, and you know, maybe mine is the best business. So I just asked him the obvious questions that you'd know. I said, what's the cut? How many customers, the average cut? How far apart are they? How long has the guy been doing it for? Why is he getting out? What's he gonna do? Just pretty simple things. And you can do that and you can allow for things like drop off rates and income and everything. You can figure it out. So I just asked him those questions. And at the end of it, I said, that's a better business by that one. So I gave the, the sale away. I got asked the same question three times in quick succession. Three people asked me, to give them advice on the best business. In each case, I told them to buy the other business. The third time I actually, I actually said, look, it's a better business, but he's charging too much. He's asking this offer that, that's best for you. So I gave away three sales. You know what happened? They all came back and bought from me. And from that time onwards, this lousy, pathetic, useless salesperson became super Jim. Oh, <laughs> that's insane. That's remarkable. That, that's mm. That speaks so highly of what honesty does and what mm. coming from integrity and what peace of mind you would have had as the person making the sale. Yes, absolutely. And everything is about, and what it really does. And, and I look back on my career and look back upon all the best decisions and every single one of them was, was based on, um, was, was a decision at the time that was not in my financial self-interest. It was against, it was doing what is the right thing to do in this situation? What is the best thing? What is the right thing to do? Because strangely enough, what that actually does, it, it doesn't help you in the short term, but it creates reputation because people know. And see, what I used to do with filling lawn mowing grounds was pretty simple. I would do everything possible with everybody who came to see me to make them successful. Now, that was even after they bought the business, I just kept on looking after them. I give them advice. I do everything I could to help them be successful. And what I used to do then, I put their name on a bit of white card, black text, their phone number, stuck it on a board behind me. And if anybody's interested in the business, I'd say, go and, and ring those people and, and just pick somebody. And there was up to about 100 eventually and, and just ask them what I'd like to do with. And everyone would say, Jim is fantastic to do with. He does exactly what he'll say. If anything, he'll earn on the side of doing more. He's always willing for advice to always replace customers. And, and it, works, it works brilliantly. And, and the same thing applied when I started off the lawn mowing franchise. And, you know, you, you look at gyms now, and this is 30 plus years ago now, and you think oh, this is giant behemoth. But 
at the time I, I was, I had no money. I had no resources. I, I was, yeah. I was making myself broke with this stupid, yeah. I thought it was, I was trying to get going. So I was, I was bad financially. I was running it from a little flat next to my house. Um, I had a rival, had 250 franchisees. They were interstate. They had fancy offices and all this stuff that I didn't have. They were far, far more impressive. I worked out a magical way. And I had no idea at the time. And somebody asked me at the beginning, they said, how many franchises do you think you might have one day if it's really successful? And I said, well, if it really, really works, well, maybe a hundred. We're nearly 4,000 now. So I didn't expect that. But I had this secret weapon, this wonderful weapon. And what I used to do was to write down the names and the phone numbers of my franchisees on a list, not, not on the board behind me, just on a written list. And if somebody was to come to see me, they should, why, why would they, you know, why should I buy from you, you know, running your business from this crummy little place rather than this established competitor? And I said, well, look, there's some differences in the way you run things, but see what I'll do. I'm going to give you a list of all my current franchisees with their phone number. And I want you to ring them. I want you to ring as many as you can, all of them, if you possibly can, and ask them what they think of the business, or how they've been looked after. And then I want you to go to the competitor and ask them, which, which I knew they wouldn't give them the list. And the fact of the matter is, because I was, I was so intent on turning into my customers, my primary customers, my franchisees into raving fans, they gave me a good report. And that's what did it. And, and that's, that's brilliant. How do you get out of the scarcity mindset though, Jim, when you are in a position giving the sale away, but you don't have the money, you don't have resources, you're trying to build a business, trying to create this passion and turn it into an income for yourself. Where do you get the mindset to just turn a sale away when you have nothing? Because you say, what's right? What's right? What's right? What, what does God want us from me? That is the number one question, not money. If you put money first, and the strange thing is people who put the money first don't do nearly as well as those who put, well, in my sense, God first, of course, but probably yours too. But, but um, somebody who says, what's the right thing to do in this situation? There's a, there's a lot of controversy now about what businesses should do. And there's this idea that's been dominant for quite a few decades that you should look to your shareholders first, to your, your stockholders. Mm -hmm. and and then the people are saying well no it's it's ethical you should be looking at ethics issues you should look after your stakeholders your employees your your customers and so forth um i actually think that that's actually the right thing to do and strangely enough because if you look after your customers and you look after your stakeholders your employees and in my sense obviously my franchisees then in the end you will make a lot lot more money and be more successful than if you put money first money should never come first What's the right thing to do? And all the time we make decisions, all the time, every day in gyms, what is right. You know, one of the things I'm most proud of is the fact that we never, virtually never get sued by anybody. Mm. We have all kinds of systems in place to make sure franchises looked after. Every franchisee has my direct phone number, my direct email address, every single one of them. And they will contact me about anything at all, at any time of the day or night, weekends, evenings, any time. I'm completely open. If there's a problem, I want to know about it. And whatever it takes, we'll fix it. If a customer's got a problem, whatever it takes, we'll fix it. It doesn't matter how much money it is. You never ask what's financial. You ask what is right. Love that. Love that. Love that. So let me take you back, Jim. Let me take you back because this is, we're talking about franchising. But I want to take you a few steps back to when you were just, you yourself, mowing lawns six days a week, working extremely hard to just pay your bills and get out of debt. How did that all go into starting? I mean, because there's one thing being a freelancer and doing it, you know, 
or being a subcontractor and doing it. But there's one thing starting a business and now recruiting it, getting in marketing in place, building it, having regular clients, then, you know, building that out. How did you start to build it out in the early days when it was just you mowing? Well, I don't have much of a clue about business in general. I still don't, quite frankly. I still do a lot of stupid things. But, but I had one very, one very, you might call it a character trait. I, I have an obsession with making people happy about the service I provide. Now, whether they're franchisees or in those days, um, customers. So, so for example, um, I, I, used, used, I just had to have the job absolutely perfect. I, I, I can remember when I was mowing the lawn, if there was a little, little bit of grass ball, you know, when grass is a bit wet, it makes a little ball about that size. Yeah. I could see one at the other end of the front, other side of the front lawn I was leaving. I'd go over, pick it up and chuck it into the garden. Every edge had to be perfect. Everything had to be picked. I worked out ways of cutting long grass completely clean. Sometimes my franchisees just run over it and make it, you know, chop it down. And but that, that just looks bad. There's ways of doing it. I've done a video on it that you can cut it and make it clean. I just, and my, people, my clients would look at what I'd done and they'd say, I never knew my lawn could look this good. And it did. And I go there for a once-off job and I pick them up as a regular and I get the neighbouring across the street. I just got so much work and I was fanatical about turning up. I hated letting customers down. It really, really upset me. Uh, I remember once I actually forgot. I, I got my, my um, diary mixed up and I missed out on two, two regular customers. And I was just appalled. I just felt so bad about that. So it just felt so wrong. So it's that, it's that extreme emotional desire which is beyond any any financial any rational calculation there's just this feeling that you've got to look after customers yeah so and, and that so drives me more than anything i mean the thing that makes me happy today is not is not actually you know counting how much money i got in the bank which is all negative anyway because we're all borrowed but but it's it's when a franchisee writes to me and says oh, this is fantastic i just love this best thing i've ever did yeah. i made forty thousand dollars in my first two months in the business i'm just so happy that to me makes my day far more than anything to do with figures and success. And the thing that upsets me most is when franchisees do poorly. Mm. I mean, it's the same thing. It's a, it, the, the emotion behind it is so important, but money is not a great motivator. I, you know, that's very interesting you say that because it's a trait that, that Jeff Bezos shares and Steve Jobs as well, because they went after the detail of their work versus mm. the money and it's the same characteristic that i've interviewed people that it's the people like yourself who are really customer centric obsessive in fact mm. about customers the experience not because they want to you want to impress them in any flash way but you want to just want them to have a happier day a happier life with the service that you provide and that yes. gives you the satisfaction which then allows the money to be generated it's always the money should always be secondary. You've got to keep an eye on the bottom line. And, and I'm not always good at that, but, but secondary. Look, it's like Ray Kroc. You know, Ray Kroc, when he was a, when he was a billionaire, he would, he would go to McDonald's and he would wander, look, see around the streets. He'd pick up some rubbish and he'd take the rubbish and he'd dump it on the manager's desk angrily. Now, what on earth is a billionaire doing picking up rubbish? It makes no sense. But that was what made him great. And I admire Ray Kroc, actually, and I admire McDonald's, actually. I think they're a great company unlike some of the franchise companies I could mention. Um, that, that, it's, it, you've got to be obsessive. You've got to, have a, you've got to have a drive that goes beyond just, hey, what's the best way to make money? But how you've got to have you a vision. Find, yeah, but how do you find a mission when you're mowing lawns? And this is where I want to come back to. When you're mowing lawns and you think, so what's my purpose in life? What's, what, do, what do I want to give? What has God 
put me on earth to do? What's my purpose? What's my mission? How do you find that in mowing lawns? Because you didn't know it was going to, God has had this prepared for you. How do you keep on task of just keeping to or being on track and not losing hope in yourself or on your journey and knowing that there's a greater plan, even though we can't see it in that moment? Well, for me, it's, it's simple because it's, it, it's not actually mowing lawns that's my plan. It's my research project. I'm currently spending a million bucks a year on a research program using pheromones, epigenetics, this kind of thing as a way of solving really serious problems like, like mental illness, which is a terrible mm, scourge in our society. That, that, is my, that is my purpose in life, my mission. After that, if anything, it's my children. I mean, business is a way of achieving that. I, I don't have a, I have a responsibility to my franchisees more than anything else, more than anyone really, and, and obviously my staff as well. But, but my mission in life is, is to serve God in the way, to do what the task has given me. Mm. And I feel very privileged to have that mission because, you know, I'm a very happy person. And, and one reason that I'm happy is because I know what I'm living for. Yeah. And, I have but, a great family and, and I have a great job, yeah. but I have a purpose. Yeah. But did you know that mission, like as you were starting up the business, like were you aware of that's what you wanted? You wanted to eventually do research work where you had enough capacity to donate? Yes. Okay. That, that was my goal. When I was $30,000 in debt and barely struggling to make ends meet, pushing along around six days a week, working incredibly hard on the edge of failure, that was in my mind. I have a mission. I cannot fail. I cannot give up. There is no option. Wow. And that, and that does keep you going because when God gives you a task, you know, somehow, and you know, there's a lot of times, I don't know what Muslims are like about, I know you, you do about alms giving and so forth, but Christians have a thing about tithing. And, and one of the things that, that I would always know that if I tithe, somehow God would look after me. It, it's it's mm -hmm. just a, a knowledge and understanding. And that, having that, that, that core of faith and core of purpose and morality is, is very helpful. Oh, extremely, extremely. Which brings me back to why did you choose franchising as a model? Because you were doing well. Now you're getting a lot of customers. You're like, what do I do? Do I, you could, because you would have just stopped at that. You could have just stopped being a great full-time business, having it just yourself. Why did you choose to scale and franchise as a model? Okay. All right. Well, this is not going to seem very impressive, but it's, it's for a start. Um, my subbies were, um, were not that good. Okay, I had people who were subcontracted, they got a percentage of the money and so forth, and they really didn't do a great job. And just to give you an example, for every 100 leads I would get, I would get roughly 100 complaints at some time or other. Okay, mm -hmm. just to put that in perspective, our recent figures would be something like a three, three quarters of 1%. It's like a more than 99% improvement. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm fanatical about customer service still. I, I still look at pretty well every poor survey every complaint every day I'm, I'm that focused on it so that was the first thing I, I hated the fact that my customers weren't being looked after well um i have to say that the real thing what happened was was a competitor i was running this little business it was doing okay i'd managed to get out of debt bought a house it was going all right um and then this this crowd comes from south australia and i just thought they were going to smash me i thought they would just crush me because they were so much they knew so much more, they had money resources. I actually rang up the state manager and I said to him, look, I don't want to compete with you guys. I'll just build up your business and, and help you to succeed because I couldn't possibly compete. Mm. And he said, no, thank you. So I, I actually raided their expo that year in, in, in 1988 in, in the exhibition buildings in Melbourne and, and um, just found out what they did. And I thought, well, you know, these guys are pretty good, but 
perhaps I can do it better. That was it. That was it. That was it. And franchising began. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so well, it took me nine months to get a contract done, which, which is mainly arguing with lawyers because the trouble was I wanted the contract that I want to sign if I was a franchisee. And that's not what most franchise contracts look like. <laughs> but it, I, I gave my franchise a lot, of, a lot of power, a lot of rights. I mean, my franchise is the only franchise system in the world where you can vote out your franchisor, where you oh. can veto changes to your own manual, where you can change to a different franchisor where you've got a right of absolute right of renewal if you're compliant. I mean, there's a stack of things in our contract that nobody else does. That's amazing. Well, that, what, that's why you're the number one franchising company in the Southern Hemisphere. In well, in terms, of, in terms of numbers, Rita, in terms of profitability, I think McDonald's and the rest of you are a lot higher than me. <laughs> but Australian, Australian company. Australian but in terms of the sheer number of franchisees, yes, yeah. of course, we've got nearly. I love your honesty. I love your sheer honesty. This is why it's <laughs> just brilliant. But in just knowing, looking at your success, you have fifty-two divisions. You've got Jim's photography and drones. You've got Jim's, um, you know, Jim's mowing, obviously. Jim's fencing. Jim's dog wash. Jim's locksmith. Jim's handyman. Jim's energy. Jim's glass. Jim's real estate. Jim's carpet cleaning. Jim's windows. Jim's car detailing. In fifty-two divisions, what's your role? in the Jim's group company? Uh, <laughs> I, um, I'm not a very good manager. I, I, I don't really run my business in any very direct sense. I have, I have very competent people who work for me. I think probably I've got, I've got two kinds of roles. One of them is that I, am, I have the greatest passion for service. I, I directly deal with complaints. I directly deal with unhappy franchisees. I like to get the nitty gritty and find out what's going wrong at the ground. I mean, I was just this morning, I was just arranging a refund to a client who'd been let down by somebody, a franchise, he had a chance to fix it, didn't do it, didn't turn up. So I said, give me details and we'll refund you 130 bucks. That's typical of what I do. I just look at every level and look at why are my customers not getting the best service? How can we do better? So I'm really focused on the, on the minutiae, the, the experience. And the other thing that I have is, um, as evidenced from my academic career, where obviously being too original is a disaster, I have a very unorthodox mind. If you if you'll tell me three standard ways of doing something, I'll give you five more on the spot, which are completely nobody's ever heard of. Mm -hmm. And strangely enough, even in academia, that was disastrous in, in business terms. It actually often is, is quite good. Like I had, I had just, just to give you an idea, we have a department that deals with sales of some of our franchises systems and, and the system has been for the, um, the salesperson's got to ring back, you get an inquiry through on the phone and the cut rings back. So I said, okay, I talked to the guy in charge, but I said, well, why don't we actually allow, put a, a, a phone, mobile phone in the sales department so that when, it, when they the inquiry comes through, it gets put through to the phone and that rings it and they pick it up on the spot and answer it. So instead of calling somebody back, you actually speak to them on the spot. Now, I just give that an example, something that came up, I thought of yesterday. And they're, and they're all running around trying to make it happen and talking to IT and stuff. But that's, that's typical me. I just look at a problem and say, how can we do it better? How can we actually give a better response? Because obviously, if you're inquiring about a franchise, that's a very important inquiry for us. Somebody ringing you back in a couple of hours, ringing you back in a couple of days is bad. But what about they take the call on the spot and talk to you? How much better is that? And then you go and talk to them and see them direct and show them what you're doing and give them a list of and, and just wanting to improve things all the time. 
do you like I know you said you're you, you're very grateful for where you are but has the role ever changed have you is it ever become too much for you like the amount of work the amount of divisions the amount of growth the amount of expectation that you're trying to make sure that everyone is happy and that the complaints are minimized does it ever become too much for you it's not too much I often feel a sense of failure I, I, I feel very guilty when one of my franchises fail I always feel what did I do wrong what mistake what what could we have done different one of the things we've done just recently is is got a um an expert to develop a psychometric test which we're giving to our new franchisees and we're trying to work out how we can better predict the ones that are going to fail we actually have a very good success rate you know something like 90 to 95 percent of small businesses like ours like surface fail in their first year with us the figure is 11 percent. but i mean i'd like it to be zero yeah so so how do you how do you do it better and when somebody fails and it, it's very hurtful i mean i don't want to most people who come into the gyms do very well. Most of them are very happy with it. And you can see this from surveys and all kinds of things. But some people fail and that's very harmful to them. It can really hurt their, it can really hurt them. It can really hurt their families. It can hurt their funders. They can lose their house. I mean, that's, that's a great responsibility. And I feel that it's a very great weight. And so I, I don't ever look, think, think, look back and think how, how well am I doing? I think, how much better could we be doing? You know, there's terrible things happen. We had a case, um, I think last year, Paul, you asked in Western Australia, where one of our franchisees actually killed his three little girls and his wife and his mother-in-law. This, this, this shocking, shocking, shocking. Oh my God. Yeah, I know, it's terrible. I, look, I don't think it was our fault in any way. He actually, in fact, in, in the interviews later, he said, I have a great business. It wasn't that at all. But you know, we were so upset by it. I went across to um, to Perth and I spoke to the guys and most of the franchise in the entire state were there. And I said, guys, what can we do to help? And we came up with a whole series of things that they came up with, like appointing certain franchisees as mentors and, and getting secondary phone numbers to talk to partners and, and little, we sent out little fridge magnets to all of our franchisees which with, with help lines and, and sorry, I'm, no. All kinds of things. So um, it's very hard when things like that happen. Yeah, and that's what upsets me the most. And, and I, it's not so much it's too much for me. It's, it's just the, um, you're responsible. I'm responsible for, for more than 4,000 families. Yeah. And, and, and how can I do that better? That's, the weight of that is extraordinary. I mean, because I, I see you as a firefighter. You're pretty much putting out, solving problems here, putting out a fire here, and then you get ones that are at, at this capacity. That, that is just overwhelming. What, what, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to sort out the fires on the spot. I'm trying to help my franchisees, and sometimes it can make a lot of difference. Somebody contacts me with something going wrong, and I just fixed it. You know, somebody couldn't start just recently because they've only followed up with their contract, and I just went across to documents and said, what's the problem here? Why can't they start? They start it the next day. I'll just do whatever it takes. But also what you're doing is looking for system changes. How can you do something that makes the system better? How can we, so we've discovered, for example, over the years that there's certain things that will help franchisees to succeed. And it's not what you might think. You know, you might think that sitting down with a franchisee for half a day, once a year doing a business review will be helpful. Well, it doesn't make any difference. But you know what really helps? Somebody ringing the franchisee at least once a week and just saying, how are you, mate? How's it going? 
Now, that can be two or three minutes on the phone. It doesn't have to talk about business even. That is very successful. Mm. Meetings, very important. We've figured out how often to have meetings. They've got it better every six weeks. Why do you say six weeks? Because that's what works the best. Less often doesn't work as well. More often doesn't help. Six weeks is optimum. So you're trying to teach all the time. We, we, at the moment, we're spending like $2 million a year on development software, which will help us to look after our franchisees and our clients better. And a massive, massive investment. But all the profits are going into that right now. Yeah, it's like, you know, like you're in the mowing or the painting business, you're really, or any of the 52 divisions, you're like in the, your customer business, which is just primarily your franchisees. That's really the, the business that you're in that I'm seeing. It's just mm -hmm. servicing. Then you were once mowing lawns, servicing those clients who needed lawns mowed, but now you're servicing those lives of the people who are your friends. That's what it really seems to me. That that's, that, that's your basis work. That's your work. Yeah, well, my, my franchisees are my primary customers, I mean, which, which is pretty, first of all, from a moral point of view, we owe them a lot more, but it's also very pragmatic because, because as our customer service has improved, the, the volume of leads has gone up astronomically. We knocked back more than 170,000 leads last year. It was like 28% of our leads we cannot service now, which has gone up dramatically. And despite the fact that we advertise less than we used to, sometimes we have to give back the money to the franchisees from the advertiser because we can't spend it because they're all so busy, which is really quite remarkable when you think about it. But the problem now is that we simply can't grow fast enough to cope with the, the incredible increase in demand for our services. What a remarkable place to be in. Like, that's just... Yes, it would be even more remarkable if I could find the people. But <laughs> I, I, to, do, to do the work, I mean, we're not going backwards. But we're just not growing as fast as we'd like. I think one of the problems is too many people these days, reader, want to be in technology and white collar jobs. And, and I, I, I see it as a great blessing that I failed in academia in a sense, because, um, you know, business is a lot more fun. It really <laughs> is. But you've got to be prepared to do the hard yards. Like, like I, I, my hands are actually callous and rough because I go out, I, I do gardening on my farm at the weekend. I just enjoy physical activity. And I think people miss out if they, if they want to do a job that's too white collarish and prestigious and be a lawyer or a banker or something like that. And when really, I think the service industry is a fantastic opportunity. I mean, there's quite a few of my franchisees that are millionaires, multi-millionaires, just from doing things like mowing lawns and testing and tagging and, and delivering skip bins and stuff like that. It, 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 business, business is a great opportunity. But is, is that why you chose to go in the route of business because you failed the academia world? Like in your, I didn't think you failed. I mean, you got your PhD in it, but in terms of you didn't become the lecturer, you didn't go well, in. Well, I didn't get any money out of it. You didn't, sake of it. There we go. <laughs> you didn't get any money out of it. So do you, is that why you feel that you like lean more towards the mowing? Because the reason why I'm asking this question is just to preface it because trying, because people are listening to this thinking, I have a passion and I need to generate an income and have an impact. So is that because you found impact and income in that one passion called mowing at that moment? Well, as I said, always said to you, mowing, mowing lawns wasn't my purpose in life. Yeah. I, if I, if my core purpose is to do with more to do with my research and my family and those kind of things. But mm. the point of it is, it's something that I like doing because I like being outside. I love the outdoors. I really do. I spend many, many hours a week outdoors, much as I can. I love physical exercise. So I love gardens. I love the. I love nature. I I, I take great pride in doing a job well. Um, so it's 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 kind of a natural fit for me to do it. And and business is very very interesting. I I mean I like I don't know if you like computer games. <laughs> I love computer games. But business is. 
business is like a, a really fascinating, ever-changing computer game that you get paid for playing. Yeah. That, that's how I, it's really fun. It's, it's enjoyable. And, yeah. and, and there's, there's hard times too when I see people fail and so forth. But, but it's, it's really creative and challenging and interesting. It changes all the time, especially with me around because I'm always thinking of new and wild ideas. <laughs> some of which work out. Sorry, what's that? Anyone can get into business? No, no. Some people just don't have what it takes. And that's one of the things you've got what to look out for. What does it take to excel in it? Um, single most important thing is a certain level of self-critical to look at yourself and say, what can I, how can I do this better? I have this in spades. There's no question. I'm endlessly self-critical. Um, too many people just... They just want to do something the same way. And, and you know, and, and we have a kind of franchisee we call a lead. And it's, it's a very small proportion, maybe 5%, but people who just won't listen. You'll tell them to do something and they'll say, oh, no, 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 no I can do this. And then the franchisor will tell them, I'll tell them. And they'll say, no, no, you're wrong. I've got to do it this way. And they do it that way and they fail. And they cannot, because something in their, in their own sense of ego will not let them admit that they could be mistaken. That's, that's the worst single thing. And obviously, and the other thing from our point of view, you've got to have a, a certain passion for doing things well, not just for the sake of money, but for the sake of, of looking after the person you're with. If you want to go and see a customer, don't, don't go for the cheap. You charge what you need to charge. We actually encourage our franchisees to raise their prices of anything, particularly because there's so much work around these days. But you say, just, Make your customers into raving fans. And if you, if you do that, if you focus on that first, you'll end up making a lot more money mm. than if you, if you just look at the money first. So it, you've got to have that kind of passion for service, which most of our franchisees do. We certainly encourage it, that's for sure. But we have this, this rating system where you get anything, you know, from up to five stars and stuff, which is really, really important. Love when you see these guys, like I've got a guy just doing my, my, and my own gardening. So Jim's mowing guy yesterday, he wasn't mowing the lawns. He was doing the garden around our house and uh, Eric's his name. And he's, he's just, he's got like a 4.9 job because I, I checked before I actually employ him, of course. And he comes and he's, he's just brilliant. He just does an incredible well, job. Well, doing your house. I mean, come on. <laughs> but he does it for his other clients customers too. That's the thing yeah, about him. Eric's, Eric is 4.9 and 4.9 is pretty, because I mean, a four star is still quite good. So to get 4.9, you have to get overwhelmingly great responses from clients. So it, it's, it's, and Eric's that kind of guy who takes pride in what he does. And the other people too, we've got a lady who does our, um, who watches our little dog, our uh, Cabello, Cabello, little furry rat if you ask me, but the girls like him, my wife does too. <laughs> but she just does a great job and she's so good, she's just so good with him and she just, just cut back and she treats him really well and she's just lovely and very reliable and, and so forth so you've got to have people i mean i'm, I'm very privileged I, I get inside look if i'm going to use anybody I, I check their rating out first and i find the really good the best ones yeah. but most of them are very good well and uh, this is why i want to go to i know you had a book written about you a biography by Catherine woolenscott who is the, the the very last guest of that podcast last year and I want to ask two questions about that book. The first question is, I know you asked Catherine, because I interviewed her about your book and what she found out. You asked her to do a full 360 
on everyone, like in terms of not only the people who like you, not only your words, but ex-franchisees, even your ex-wives, like you wanted the full breadth of who you are, which is just extraordinary. So there was What's not, yeah, the full perspective of everyone's thoughts, even those who didn't like you. My question to you is that, is that because of your Christian background, because you want the full honesty and to reduce ego? Or was that because of your history background? And because so history would record you as a person who gave a full story and not just one-sided? Uh, <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it's partly an ethical, it's partly an ethical question that, that I think the truth should be told about people. And I'm a highly imperfect individual. Mm. Um, but, but, but to be blunt, it's also, it's also partly commercial too, but they're not that different because if you, if you um, write a book, which is a hagiography, people don't take it seriously. I mean, they look at this and say, well, there's something wrong with this. This guy can't be so good. You know, he's got to have some flaws and stuff. And it's not credible. So a good biography, a credible biography has got, has got to be able to look at all sides of a person and, and see their, their strengths, their failings, their weaknesses, things they've done wrong. I mean, it's, 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 it's not credible if, if you mm -hmm. just, if you just, and I don't, I wouldn't like to read something like that. Whereas yeah. I find it, uh, this book was very interesting reading to me. There's a lot of stuff I didn't know. Wow. A lot of things going on in gyms that they, that they told Catherine about. I had no idea. I didn't even know exactly who my first franchisors were. They had all these deals worked out and stuff. And wow. it was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> some stuff I wouldn't have put, if I were writing myself, some of that stuff I wouldn't have put in there, I must say, but still, yeah. I think it's, a, I think it's a probably overall fair account. But did you read anything that made you feel sad or made you feel less than or made you kind of, you know, got to you, like made you break down? Well, to be honest, I probably people people were rather more favourable, spoke more favourably about me than I thought they would. I, it, it was actually, I mean, I, I gave her the list of all my, my enemies, people who don't like me, but mm. most of them wouldn't speak to her. So <laughs> <laughs> none, none of my ex-wives would, would talk to her. And I, so enemies probably yes. not, not quite the term I'd apply in that case. I mean, but anyway, you've you got to say that, that anybody who's got three women who completely refuse to live with him anymore it's got to have some some issues at some level my current <laughs> wife who's beautiful we've married the 18 years and we're really happy like honeymooners but she says it's like i've got a sort of like mild aspergers or something like that so, yeah. so she's just she's just she's just wonderful what's the difference what's the difference between this one being such a beautifully successful marriage and like did something happen in you that changed was it you just found someone that was more appealing to what your needs were look if i if i did good works for a thousand years, Rita, I could never deserve Lee. She is just the best, the, the best. I absolutely crazy. I adore her. It's, it's really literally a honeymoon with all the, the fights and everything else that goes on in honeymoons too. So it's not, it's not a calm marriage. It can be very volatile. We yell at each other and stuff, but I, I love her to pieces. Um, one, of the, one of the issues I had was when my first marriage broke down, my wife got a boyfriend, actually, it's how it happened. But, um, I had five children and I really, really, really love my children. And to be fair, when you're coming into a marriage where every week these five and then eventually six very boisterous, very demanding children come in and, and my attention is so completely on them, it's, it's, it's very hard for a woman. And I, I don't blame them at all. I, I really, really don't blame them. With my third marriage, I was really shocked when she wanted out. And I actually... 
there's one price I wouldn't pay. I wouldn't give up my kids, which was, was what the price I would have to pay. I, I said, look, I'll, I'll, I'll get a second house. I'll rent a second house. I'll see them separately so I don't have to come here. Basically, I just, I just couldn't give them up. That, that was the issue. So I, I don't blame them. But Lee is, Lee is when, she, when we first married, it was difficult for her. There was this whole mob of young children you know, coming into the house and she just, she just did the right thing. She looked after them. She just served. She's right. just a, she's just got a, she's just morally, she's just good through and through. She's just a really, really, really good person. I mean, she's, she's gorgeous. She's absolutely beautiful, but more inside than out. She's also beautiful on the outside too. So yeah. she's just, and, 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 and she, you know, we have, she has friends like staying with her and, staying with us and, and these women, Chinese women are about her age, um, many of them very wealthy and stuff. And they actually get very upset. They see this, this paradise that she lives in with these really loving, wonderful children and this husband who completely adores her and will do anything for her. And they, and they, they envy this, but they don't see what she gave, and how much she contributed and how much she, how much she, she gave up. I remember one time when, when one of my sons had a real problem at home and he wanted to come and stay with me. And my previous wife said, absolutely no, would not accept him this. And, and, um, and I, I just mentioned this to Lee and she said, no, he can come. And I was so grateful to her. Wow. I was crying. It was, it was so, it was so moving that she would do so much. Yeah. And all the all my all my kids from they, they all adore her. They, they like her better than me, actually. That's for sure. Just, <laughs> that's, that's a great sign. That's a, a relief. That's a relief. And I, it's actually because you, your youngest child is nine years old. Ten now, yeah. Ten. And so you became a father at your youngest. Whether you were about fifty-eight, fifty-seven. Hmm. Was that at all, was, I mean, I think that's beautiful. Was that at all uh, different? Did anyone like, you know, were, were you kind of under pressure for because of your age or anything like that? No, 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 no Rita. The only thing that really upsets me is that that's not coming. Oh. I would have liked them more. I, I adore my son. He is, he is such a beautiful, beautiful boy. He is so, I was just talking to him yesterday. He was, he was mentioning one of his friends was talking about Julius Caesar and, and, um, and so I was talking about Julius Caesar and, and the Romans and what happened to the Roman Empire and why it collapsed and, and why the Republic fell apart and stuff. And it was just this, I mean, he's, he's just this, this lovely, lovely discussion. And, he, and he's, he's doing this, we've got him at tutors to help on computers and stuff. So he's, uh, yeah, I, I, I love my son to pieces. He's wonderful. And I love, we have all these games. I'm always chasing around the house too. We have this thing where he, he whacks me or something and I chase him around the, and jump over the couch and catch him and sit him and tickle him. And we do this all the time. He gets upset in public actually. He says, you've got to behave better. How do you find the time? Because you're chasing around, you're spending time, you're talking about Julius Caesar. That's a lot for a CEO of a multi-million dollar company who's running an empire in so many different Oh, countries. Rita, I am, I am, I'm just lazy, that's all. I, I have everybody doing everything. You know, you know, one of the great secrets of my success, such as it is, is that I'm really bad at doing most things. So I find somebody who's good at doing what I'm not good at. Like Lee, for example, is a far, far better business manager than I am. We had a factory which we set up, which was a stupid mistake anyway to build dog wash trailers. Now I ran it indirectly for about two years, lost money. Then I said, eventually, look, Lee, you take it over. Within two months, it was, it was breaking even. She's just, she's a better manager than me by far. I, I've got the creativity, the vision, the ideas, and, and this, this, this drive and this indomitable will, this kind of thing that, that you know, does help a bit. But, but as a manager, she's better. And then I have a great um, 
um, guy, um, Joel, who does our, our social media. I haven't got a clue about social media. I really am clueless. But he knows this stuff and he's got a passion for it and he's good at it. Yeah. And, and then, then you've got people like in, in IT and you've got people with finance. And I've got a wonderful lady, Cynthia, who runs finance, who's actually off on, um, on leave right now. But she's, she's, she's amazing. She's just incredibly honest and dedicated. So, and we've got Eugene in IT, who, who's, who's fanatical. He, he keeps on sending these spoof messages around to try and catch people out. We have this thing called, a, if, if, you, if you click on the wrong link, and then we have this, this, this wall of shame if you get caught. Oh. <laughs> so he's got a passion for that. You see, I've got, and I've got a great guy, Matt, who's running our sales department too. He's got, you know, I've just got great people around me. Do you have any methodologies or any tips for recruiting people? Oh, I'm a pretty awful person to choose people. I, I've got to say, I, I, I make terrible mistakes, but I can pick them when, they, when they're there, if they're working out. I have a, I'm known for, for losing people at the top. Not, not a lot of my middle, lower level employees are with me forever. They, they, they don't, just don't leave, very rarely leave. But mm -hmm. at the top, it's been very difficult to find people of the caliber I need. I have got some really great managers now, but it's taken a long time. Mm -hmm. I, I wish I had the magic thing. If I had one skill mm -hmm. that, I, that I lack is the ability to, to, to judge people better. You know, mm -hmm. you look at people like Elon Musk and, and those kind of guys, they are so good at recruiting the right people. I am not good at that. Okay, all right. So my, my question to you, there's two last questions for you. The, the, the one that I wanted to ask about Catherine Woolenscott is that why did you choose her to write your biography? And the reason why I'm asking is because people who listened to her interview were asking me, how does someone as new into the industry of writing got the opportunity to write a biography of an, someone like yourself? What was it about her that really stood out so other people that are listening who want to become writers can listen to the things that you saw in her? Well, um, she actually, she, she came to a, a seminar that was running at my conference center and, mm. and she heard me and I gave a talk to the, to the seminar, which I often do, those kind of things, just, just chat about it. And she came, just approached me after and started talking to me about it and, uh, I, you know, about what she'd done and stuff. And she'd done a couple of, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, TED Talks. Yeah. So I, I, I looked at those and I thought they were good and I just got talking to her and she's done a bit of writing and stuff and, and I said, um, what about, what about a biography? Okay. All right. But originally the idea was that she would sort of ghost it for me. And I said, I think it'd be more effective if you did it yourself and under your name and with your viewpoint and just make it like an, like an independent, like, like there was one I've just been reading about Elon Musk by, by a guy called Vance, that kind of thing. So yeah, I think she just, she just approached me. She's, the TED Talks were good too. They're really good. I don't know if you've seen them, but they're but they're they're very impressive. And she's a she's a remarkable young lady. She's, yeah. yeah. So basically, it was someone you saw them online. You actually verified them online, looked at what they were doing, and then there's a relationship that built from a talk that you did, and that's how you got to know her and gave her the opportunity. That's, mm. that's beautiful. So one of my, the last thing I want to ask you is that I heard you saying in a talk that exercise, there was a direct correlation between you being broke in the very beginning of your early days and being unfit. And then when you started to get fit and run five Ks a day, that your business really took off. Can you speak to me about how that worked and what is it about exercise that allowed you to really peak your performance? Well, in those early days when I was going broke and losing all that money was because I was just sitting in my beanbag reading science fiction and, 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 I was engaged at the time too. I was completely distracted by that and stuff. I, 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 I so, um, it, it, so getting fit was actually mowing lawns in those days. 
but when I stopped mowing lawns, I, I recognized that I needed to continue it. So I, I, try, to, I try to do at least half hour vigorous exercise a day on a treadmill, playing squash, working on my farm. I, I would probably average two hours a day of hard physical exercise of some kind, you know, walking fast, something. So, um, look, exercise is, is it's, if you could bottle exercise in a pill, mm. it'd be a trillion dollar drug. It is, it is by far the best treatment for mood. It is better by far than any antidepressant. It, is, it, is, it boosts your mood and your, your stamina. It gives you energy. It, it helps, gives you health. It helps you to control your weight. It's, it's just extraordinary. I, I know my state of well-being is, is, is wonderful. I have a really, really, really happy happy life and that's part of it being a, being a christian going to church regularly i mean being alongside my, my wonderful wife in church on, on sunday morning is one of the absolute peak times of my of my whole life it's, it's wonderful and mm-hmm. that sense of communion with god which i'm sure you understand it's, it's, mm-hmm. um same god different name same god okay yeah. so that living a life in the right way people have uh, one of the things that interests me Rita, is happiness what makes people happy People think that you're happy because you have a, a better car or a better house or it, rubbish. It has so little to do with it. What, what makes you happy is basic things like relationships, family, um, fitness, sense of meaning and purpose in your life, a job that you love, whether it's the best paying one that's around or not. It's, it's, it's living, living life in the way that God wants us to live that makes us happy because he's, he made us, he knows how we work. And so if we follow his instructions, then, then we live a great life. And that's, that's the great secret, chasing after money. And, 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 you know, one of the things I often think about is what Jesus said, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because wealth is is inherently corrupting and destructive it's a great tool but it's a terrible terrible ruler hmm. have you ever shied away from money because of that belief have you ever shied no. away from never 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 but i'm very very careful about how i spend it i mean our kids basically at some theoretical level they know we are rich but they just don't see it and they're always coming back from and saying all oh, these other kids have got this and this and this and i say well, what if you can afford you know you you want to earn the money, a little bit of pocket money and stuff. You save it up, you can get it. My kids are never, never, never. I will not do. I often have discussions with my 10-year-old, with Aaron, about this, about, about why we don't give them the money. It would be so easy. We could give them so much. We could do everything. We could have, we could have you know, we'd not lift a finger. I mean, I, I, I don't need to do the washing up or take out the garbage or, or any of those things that I do. I don't need to do those things. I don't need to make the beds. I do them because it's, it's, it's money should not rule you. Mm. It's, it's a great thing. Look, we have, look, we, we, we live pretty well. I'm not denying it. I can buy any book that I want, which is to me a big thing because I read or listen to at least a couple of books a week. We have fresh fruit year round, as much mm. as you want to eat. So, you know, we don't, we don't lack mm. the mm. basics in life, but I think that, that I drive a you know, 10 year old car, which is a bit battered and, and I just, I just, I just think that money is, is, is money's to be used. And, and God, when God gives us money, they gives it, he gives it to us for a purpose. Mm. It's not to be spent on personal extravagance. So what can you do to make, to help your family, to make the world a better place? Oh. And throwing a huge amount of money, your kids and your lifestyle doesn't do that at all. Oh, I love that, Jim. That was just perfect ending. That was just a perfect answer to the question. Thank you so much 
for joining me on this Unbox Your Gift podcast. It's been absolutely, it's been a dream of mine to have you on. And so thank you for giving me the time. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Rita. It's really nice. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. And we'll catch you on the very next episode of Unbox Your Gift.